Take your Bibles again to the book of Mark and chapter 2. In years gone by, I used to do a fair amount of itinerant preaching. I'd go from uh, churches to churches, and often I'd preach in uh, three or four or five churches, different ones, every month. And sometimes you'd go and you'd have a message all prepared, and you just weren't sure if it was the right one. Sometimes you kind of wondered, well, is this appropriate for this church, this congregation, this time? And I often used to pray the Lord would give me some form of confirmation uh, before I began to preach that what I'd prepared and what He'd laid on my heart was really what He wanted. Sometimes uh, it was something entirely different, and you got to preach extemporary preaching with not a lot of preparation but prayer beforehand. But often during the singing of the hymns, prior to the beginning of a service, you'd hear a hymn sung, and it would just fit so well what you were going to preach on. Well, today it was exactly like that. That song that we just sang couldn't have fit more perfectly what I want to talk about this morning from Mark chapter 2. In fact, the weaving of grace and, and Brother Gordon's leading us in communion fits so well with what we want to look at this morning. So my question to you this morning is this, why did Jesus, why didn't he get along with all those other religious sects and groups that were in Palestine, in Judea during the days that he was there? Why was he always at tension, always at odds with those different groups? The Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and the Herodians and the priests and so on, there's always tension there. Well, there was a tension because Jesus was bringing and introducing to them a new way of approach to God. It was an approach based on his own fulfillment of the law. It was approaching by God's grace through faith in God. Now, that wasn't really a new way to approach God. In fact, the only way that man has ever been able to approach God is by grace through faith. But the time of the Jews, the time of Israel's time in the land and so on, was very much a way of law. It was a system where legalistic and works-based, you would bring a sacrifice, you would kill the sacrifice, the sacrifice would be offered up in blood and fire and smoke. You had to keep the law. Now, the problem is we often think the law is the problem. Well, the law is not the problem. The law, the Bible says, is holy and just and good. The law made promises that the law would keep if, and it's a massive if, if we could keep the law perfectly. And the problem is that nobody can. So while the promises the law makes, he makes two kinds of promises. If you obey the law perfectly, you will enjoy fellowship with God. If you do not obey the law perfectly in every detail, you will suffer the judgment of God. So the law kept its promises all the time. The problem was we never met the first promise. We could never keep the law perfectly. Well, the the Pharisees lived their life, and they had come to the assumption, the conclusion was that, that because of all their keeping of the law, that they had obtained and won favor with God. And Jesus came on the scene, he was born, he began to live his life, and he was introducing to them a new way, a new system, if you like, of approaching God by grace and through faith, and not in keeping the law. It was so radically different from what the Pharisees had been used to that they simply could not grasp. They couldn't get their head around what Jesus was doing. And so they contradicted him. They they came against him at every turn. 
Well, this section now, uh, actually being in, in last week's passage in 2 verses 1 to 12, and the healing of the paralytic, and you see the scribes are reasoning in their hearts. It begins a slow, steady climb all the way through the book of Mark of the contention, the division, the, the, um, the working against Jesus by the Pharisees and so on, and it finally culminates in his death on the cross. Well, this passage really brings us right to the beginning of that. So let's, let's uh, read together from verse number 13 all the way down to 3 and verse number 6. So Mark 2, 14 to 3, verse 6. I'm reading from a New American Standard, uh, in case you're wondering. It says this, And he went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at table in the house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, that's Jesus, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and the worst tear results. No one puts new wine to new wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins." And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are you doing, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need, and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiath of the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with them. And Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And he entered again to a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Let's ask again for God's blessing, shall we? Father in heaven, this morning we pray, O God, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would minister the words of God to us, that you would speak to every heart, Father, you know the needs in the room. You know the hurts and the heartaches. Father, you know the sin that lies within our hearts. And Father, we pray that as we open the scriptures together, that the Spirit of God would speak to every heart, minister to every need. Father, convict of sin, comfort the hurting, give strength to those who are weak. Father, lift us up and build us up 
as we read and study and look at your word together. And we ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Notice, first of all, the structure of the text. It's very neatly arranged as four stories around a central parable. So in verses 13 to 17, you have Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners. Then verses 18 to 20, you have Jesus' disciples not fasting but rejoicing. And then the center point there, verses 21 and 22, you have a parable of the new wine in new wineskins. And then verses 23 to 28, you have Jesus' disciples harvesting and eating on the Sabbath, eating grain on the Sabbath. And then in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3, you have Jesus healing and doing good on the Sabbath. So you've got four stories, and the center point is the parable. And I struggle to figure out, what does that parable mean? What's he trying to say? Why does he put it there? And the reality is, he gives the parable, and he uses the stories around it to actually explain and amplify what the parable is saying. One thing you have to remember when you read through Mark and the different Gospels is, the writers don't arrange their material on the basis of chronology. Mark, in particular, arranges all the stories and sayings of Jesus by themes more than by this, then this, then this, then this. There is a general movement from Galilee all the way to Jerusalem and the cross, but the material, the stories and the sayings are actually arranged by theme more than time happening, okay? For example... When you read in chapter 1, where he says that after John was taken into custody, Jesus came from Galilee, or into Galilee, preaching the gospel. John isn't recorded being taken into custody until chapter 6, five chapters later. So it's obviously not arranged chronologically, okay? Arranged by theme. So the theme in this part here is his contention, his division, his... Um, his arguments, if you like, with the Pharisees, the beginning of this great tension that will build all the way through the book and end at the cross. So the central point of the passage is the parable. The parable is the key to understanding the tension between Christ and the Pharisees. You wonder why they're always arguing? By the way, just a little side point, the Pharisees, theologically, and Jesus were almost the same. Their beliefs and so on were so close. The Sadducees were the the crazy liberals. They're way off. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in demons. They don't believe in life after death. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And that's why they're sad you see. That was was the comedy moment of the day. Okay, here we go. Sadducees are sad you see because they don't believe in the resurrection. Well, that's why Jesus has so much contention with the Pharisees. They're so close. They believe so many things are similar to Jesus, but because they haven't, they've missed it by, it seems so little, the reality is so close, yet so massively far away. And they have this constant battle between them. Well, here's how we understand it. Look at the parable again. Verses 21, 22, he says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise the patch pulls away from it, and the new from the old, and the worst tear results. 22, no one puts new wine to old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well, but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. That's one parable, and the idea is this. This is what the different elements mean. New wine and new cloth Both picture life. The reality is they both can move and act by themselves. The unshrunk cloth, when you add water to it, it shrinks, right? You put a sweater in the wash and the dryer comes out three sizes smaller. That's the same idea. Wine 
is also new wine's idea of growth and movement and life too. In those days, what they did was they finished, they didn't quite finish fermenting the wine in the big gallon jugs and so on. They poured it into the wine skins, these goatskin bags. And as it finished that fermenting process, and you know what happens, you have fermentation, is it expands, it produces gas. And so what happens is that wine skin sealed up with the new wine, it expands and the, and the fresh wine skin is able to expand with it. But if you put an old, dried-out wineskin that's already been expanded as far as it can, you fill it full of brand-new wine, that wine will expand with fermentation and blow the thing apart, and you have wine all over the ground, you ruin the wine and the wineskin. So the new cloth and the new wine both speak of new life. All right, The old cloth or the old garment and the old wineskin speak of the Judaistic way to approach God by works of law and legalism. What Jesus is showing is there's a new way to come to God. It's no longer required to make the sacrifices because he is going to become the sacrifice for everybody. There's a brand new way coming, and it so rocks the Pharisees' mind, they can't understand it. And that's why they're constantly coming against him with questions and contention because they can't get what he's trying to say. It's a new life. But the... The new wineskin and the new garment, if you like, they speak of a new way of approach. And that way of approach is by grace through faith. So you and I can never have the new life in Christ with the old system of Judaistic legalism. If you're trying to earn God's favor by keeping the law, trying to earn God's favor by keeping all kinds of rules and regulations, you will not understand the new life in Christ because it's by grace. It's not by keeping works of law. The problem is the Pharisees have assumed their legalism has given them the best life they could possibly have. But it hasn't, not even close. The scenes with Jesus and his disciples, it's confronting and it's shocking to those men. And their conclusion is that Jesus is greatly sinning because he breaks all their customs and all their practices that they think are based on keeping the law. So Jesus confronts their legalistic mindset with grace. Jesus is eating and drinking with sinners. And that's a good thing. But they can't understand it. Jesus' disciples are not fasting. They're rejoicing as attendants at a wedding. And that's a really good thing. But the Pharisees can't understand it because they don't understand grace. Jesus' disciples have a grasp of the word of God in its true intent, not its legalistic restrictive sense, because Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And that's a really good thing. But again, they don't get it. They can't understand grace. So the Pharisees can't understand, they can't handle all these things. The simple reality is a legalistic person cannot get their hands around, cannot get their minds around how grace works. It's not because we earn God's favor. You and I will never do enough good to ever earn God's favor. If you're trying to earn God's favor... If you make legalistic practice your way of making, getting in God's good books, if you like, give up. You can't do it. It's impossible. And that's what he's coming them and showing them in all these different scenes that they confront him with. Let's, let's work our way through. Let's kind of lo- notice it together. Grace confronts law and legalism. It will always bring tension. Until grace finally wins out, which it must do. The new life in Christ cannot be had by works of law. 
So it leaves these two great systems kind of opposing one another. Well, the title for our message this morning is simply the new life, or by God's grace, we live the new life in Christ. The first point is this, leave everything behind to live the new life in Christ. Look what he says in verses 13 to 17. He says, he went out again by the seashore, seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened as he was reclining at table in the, his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. Notice that line, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Notice again, Jesus is teaching the people the word of God. Probably what's happening is he's walking along the seashore, walking along parts of Judea, and he's teaching and expounding the people as he passes by. And he comes along, and there's Levi sitting at the crossroads, and he has his table set up. And as people come by, he would assess them their taxes, and he would take, you know, if you owed 100 bucks, he'd charge you 1,000 and take 900 for himself and give it to the government. If you didn't pay, he would call the soldiers, and you would get in a lot of trouble. And so they were considered traitors. They were considered uh, thieves and robbers. They were the worst of the worst. And the Romans used Jewish men to do this. And Jesus is preaching and teaching the gospel to these people as he walks along. And he sees Levi. And he looks at him and says, you, follow me. And Levi, no doubt, has heard what Jesus has been saying. And he gets up and he leaves his table behind. If you look in Luke 5, 27, 28, it actually says that he leaves his table behind. And he steps out with the disciples and he follows along behind them. Day probably ends and they all get together. And Jesus is in the house again, probably Simon Peter's house. And they're lying again, reclining around the table. And they're eating together and they're enjoying that that moment together. But in this part here, I just want to focus on the fact that he left everything to follow Jesus. Notice in both cases, I did already, that he teached and preached the gospel as he called them. By God's grace, the disciples and Levi, they've repented of sin. They've left it all behind. By God's grace, they've obeyed the gospel following him. Following, by the way, is an exercise of faith, isn't it? If someone calls you to follow him, you basically step in behind them. You put yourself under their leadership. You put yourself under their direction and their control, and you walk behind them. You're submitting yourself to them and trust them that they know where they're going. If I ever tell you, follow me back to my house, don't do it, because I probably don't know where I'm going. I get lost in my backyard, right? So what you do is... Oh, you think it's funny. You ask my wife. You just go, who directs and who drives? And she'll say, I direct, he drives. Because I get lost so easy. It's true. My kids are nodding. I know it's true. Right? But what you're doing when you're following somebody is you're putting yourself under their leadership and under their lordship, and you're submitting themselves, yourself to them. And by grace, these men have left everything behind. Remember the disciples? They're in their boat. They're casting nets in the sea. They're on the seashore washing the nets. They've got everything there. They leave everything behind. They leave their father and their other workers in the boat. They leave their nets behind. They get up and they follow Jesus. They left it all behind. And the beginning of new life in Christ for us becomes when we leave everything behind to follow Jesus Christ. Listen. 
You cannot bring your sin with you. Levi didn't get up and fold up his table and take his bags of money and tuck him in and just come along behind Jesus thinking, no, no, I'll get tax out of all these guys as well. Well, he left it behind. The disciples didn't grab all their nets and all their fishing gear and put on their backs and get up behind Jesus and start walking down the beach behind him, staggering under a load of nets and boat and all that equipment. No, they left it behind to follow Jesus. And by God's grace... That's the point. By God's grace, they left those things behind. They repented of their sin. They believed the gospel message that Jesus was preaching, and they followed after Jesus Christ. But not the Pharisees. They'd heard the message too. I'm convinced that all those crowds of people were following. The Pharisees were there listening right alongside everybody else. They heard about the healings and the casting out demons. They heard about cleansing of lepers. They heard, maybe some of them had been there when the paralytic stood up, picked up his bed, and walked out the door. They'd seen him heal. They knew he could forgive sin. They knew everything about him, but they're still resisting. No, we won't submit ourselves to this man. They're refusing to leave everything to follow Christ behind. And the question becomes, is it really necessary? Like, why couldn't... Levi bring his tax table with him and do a little tax collecting on the side. Why couldn't the Pharisees carry on being Pharisees and follow Jesus at the same time? Surely, I mean, come on, let's not be legalistic about this. Let's, let's just let people do what they do and come along and follow Christ, right? No. Take your Bibles, flip over to Philippians 3. We're in Philippians 2 already. Let's go to Philippians 3 this morning. I want to see, I want you to see, and I want us all to see... Um, G, uh, not Jesus, Paul, and his attitude. He is a Pharisee. He's probably one of the greatest Pharisees that ever lived. And look what he says about what it means to follow Christ. He says in Philippians chapter 3, beginning of verse, uh, let's go from verse number 4. He says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh... I far more. I was circumcised the eighth day. I was of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness was in the law, found blameless. Nobody could bring a charge against Paul on a basis of the law. Sure, he broke it, but they couldn't find any fault against him. He says, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ, more than that I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value. I love the King James. The excellency. The excellency of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom's sake, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ. You see what he's saying? I gave it all up. So I could follow Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus is calling for each of us, is to give it up, to leave everything behind. You say, how are we going to do that? We live in 2016. We have houses and homes and businesses and jobs, and we don't live in, you know, first century AD. It's a different scenario for us. You know what? He's calling every one of us to leave behind the sin that so easily ensnares and entangles us. He's calling us to leave behind the lusts and the habits and the addictions that so easily weigh us down. Levi put everything behind him. He left it all behind. He cast himself completely on Jesus and followed him all the way. The Pharisees just cannot get their heads around this. 
The reason we must come by God's grace is that coming and approaching God by works robs God of His glory. Let's just say for some extremely bizarre reason that one of us could do enough good works to make it all the way to heaven. And all the rest of us there were saved by grace. But one person rocks up and says, I did it. I kept all the works of the law. I lived a perfectly sinless life. I did it. Who gets the glory out of that? That person, don't they? Does God get any glory out of that? No. Because he is... He hasn't done it. This man has done it. And the reason why we must come by grace and not by legalistic thinking is because God gets the glory out of that, not us. And how many of us are trying to do things to earn God's favor? Listen, you will never do anything well enough, good enough, properly enough to ever earn God's favor. It's God's favor is there because God is gracious to you. But Noah, as... Gordon was saying, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What does that mean? That Noah did something good enough to find favor? No, it means that God poured out grace on Noah. And God saw that grace that he put on Noah, and it was favorable in his eyes. He didn't get it because he did something. He got it because God is gracious. Levi had nothing to recommend him to Christ, did he? I'm a tax collector. I'm a thief. I'm a hypocrite. I'm a robber. Can I follow you? No, none of those credentials would work with Jesus one little bit. He was called simply because Jesus saw him and he had grace on him and he called him to follow him. Listen, if you're here this morning, you've heard the gospel, you repented of your sin. It's not because you did something, it's because God looked at you and said, I have favor on them, I will call them and they will follow me. They can leave everything behind and come and walk with me. You cannot earn God's favor. Give up if you're trying. Accept it, that it's by grace. You say, why do you then tell us to read the Bible every day? Why do you then call us to pray every day? Why do you badger us about coming to church and coming to prayer meetings? Isn't that earning God's favor? Listen, if you read your Bible every day because you want to earn God's favor, stop. You missed the point. If you read your Bible every day because you want to know and love Jesus, if you want to know God more, and so you open a Bible and you soak your mind and you soak your heart in the Scriptures to know God more, that's what it's all about. If you're praying simply to fulfill a religious checklist, I prayed for everybody today. Tick. Pray for John. Pray for Dad. Pray for Darren. Pray for everybody. Just done. Close the book. Keep going. You missed the point. The point of prayer is not a religious checklist. The point of prayer is maintaining a living, vibrant relationship with God. How do we fellowship as people when we pray? When I bring someone to the Lord Jesus in prayer and I cry out to God to deal with that person, to encourage them, to strengthen them, to comfort them, I have building fellowship between me and God and me and that person. You get texts from me once in a while, praying for you today. This is what I prayed for you. Anything I can pray for specifically? You know why I do that? Because when I stop and spend time in, before God in prayer for you, my heart overflows with love for you. That's why we should pray for each other. Not because it's a religious duty, because it's how we build that grace. I'm sorry, I just, I've launched off my notes and gone a little differently, but that's all right. Listen, it's God's grace because God's grace makes much of God, not me. 
The Pharisees could not get a hold of that because all they were trying to do is look better than everybody else, look more religious, more devout than everybody else because they thought that somehow that would give them more kudos with God. And they missed the point. It's all about God's grace. It's coming to God by works of law makes much of me and gives me reason to boast in myself if I could actually keep the law perfectly, which I cannot. I can't. If you break one rule, you broke them all. Coming to God by his grace through faith in God makes much of God. It glorifies God's names. The tax collectors and disciples of Jesus, they heard the message of the gospel. They believed the message. They left everything behind and began to follow Christ. They had no works of righteousness to offer. They simply believed. What about us? What about you? If you think you're good enough for God to take you as you are, Let me tell you something what the Bible says about that. The Bible says your righteousness is as a filthy rag. I had a friend who uh, was teaching at a camp one year, um, Bible camp, and he took a a pair of underwear. I might have told you this story anyway, but he took a pair of underwear at the beginning of camp, went down to the lake. This is gross. He he dug around the bottom of a lake side. It was kind of muddy and silty, and he tucked the underwear, white underwear, down underneath a rock and put the rock back and left there all week. At the end of the week, the camp was all gathered around that lakeside, and the rock was right where they were sitting. And he walked down to the beach, and they're all watching him, and he digs on the rock in the water and pulls this pair of underwear out. Well, you can imagine, one week in silty, dirty, wet soil, it's not white anymore. And there's no detergent on the face of the earth to get that thing white ever again. And he held it up, and he said, listen. He said, do you think you're good enough to meet God? You think your righteousness are good enough? You think your good works are good enough? You think all your legalistic doings are good enough to make you good enough before God? This is what they looked like to God. And he began to held out close to them. And they all kind of pulled back because it was disgusting. Listen, you and I can never come to God on the basis of what we think we are, how good we think we are. It is only by grace. Only by grace. God is absolutely holy. He is absolutely just and perfect and holy. He can't even look on sinners. But he pours out his grace on us that he might look on us and take us to himself as his people. God in his immeasurable grace sent Jesus not just to call sinners to repentance, not just to preach the gospel, not just to heal the sick and call people to follow him. God in his indescribable grace sent Jesus to die on a cross to pay for your sins so you and I, believing in Jesus, can be saved. We have new life in Christ by God's grace. No other reason. Leave everything behind. And come and follow Jesus. Second thing is this. Come and fellowship with Christ and his believers. Look at the story. Verses uh, 15 to 18. We read a little while ago. It's, it's the story of um, them gathered around. They're reclining. Verse 15. Reclining at the table in the house. And many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them and they were following him. Notice that they all speak of intimate fellowship. Remember we did the... Easter a couple weeks ago, talked about Jesus reclining around the table. It's the same idea. On the couches, all lying together, and they're all close together, and they're using one arm to reach out and take the food and eat. And they would have been a very close, intimate setting, even closer than these chairs are, and they jam you together pretty close, tight to each other. This would have been a very intimate scene. There's an intimacy, there's a fellowship. The Bible, when it describes two people eating a meal and sharing a meal together, is describing what fellowship really is. That's why this meal we eat here, 
the bread and the wine, the bread and the juice, when we eat it, we talk about a fellowship meal. That taking of that bread and passing it one to another, each pulling a little piece of that loaf of bread, we're all sharing in it together, communing, communion together. And these men are around a table and they're eating together. They're sharing food together. It's fellowship. We enjoy as a church fellowship with one another. And the beautiful thing about all this is this. Jesus didn't just call us to leave everything behind and come up by ourselves. He called us to leave everything behind and come and be a part of a family and a body. He invited us. He called us into fellowship with himself and the believers in this body. That's an incredibly rich thing. I think, just thinking about church and some of our attitudes, some of my attitudes towards church and the gathering of God's people from time to time, we miss out, we misunderstand, we allow ourselves to get so easily distracted away from what this means when we come together as a people to fellowship around. I like this new setup for one reason. Not because it looks like the brethren that we used to belong to. I like it because it puts the communion elements in the center. And we gather, in a sense, around them. And Christ is put to the center of our view. That's the point. We gather around the Lord Jesus. It's an intimate scene. Notice something else. All those men were following him. Some people take those verses about how Jesus was eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners, and they use them to justify the idea you can go out and you can eat and drink with anybody you want, and you can have fellowship with anybody who lives any kind of sinful lifestyle. They say, well, Jesus did. Look, he ate with tax collectors and sinners. Look very closely at how the Bible describes those men. It says in verse 15... He was reclining a table with uh, tax collectors and sinners. Uh, there were many of them, sorry. And he was dining with them, and they were following him. Who's the they refer to? It refers to tax collectors and sinners. Jesus is not sitting around the table. By the way, the word sinners there most likely indicates prostitutes. Simple as that. He wasn't eating and drinking and fellowshipping with men and women who were living openly sinful lifestyles. He was eating and drinking with men and women who had left everything behind to fellowship and follow him. You need to be careful how we use verses like that and abuse verse like that to justify our behavior. He was eating and drinking and fellowshipping with those that were following him. These men, these women had left everything behind to follow him. Okay? The listen, the new life in Christ in which we are called to is a life of fellowship with Christ, a life of fellowship with his followers. New life in Christ removes all boundaries and distinctions. Jesus and tax holders and disciples, they're all together. Now it's as part of the church. It's no longer Jew and Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. It's Christ is all and in all. You and I from all different parts of the world and cultures and languages and nations, we all have one thing in common. What is it? We speak English. No, that's not it, because some of us don't speak English very well. Is it because we all live in Australia? No, that's not it. Is it because we all come from Brethren or Baptist or some other church background? No. We have one thing in common, one person in common. It's Christ. That's how we have fellowship. The reason why you put two believers who don't speak the same language together and they can have a form of fellowship is because they have Christ. It's all about Christ. It's not about us. 
They're all made one in Christ. It's all of Christ and Christ and all. Why do we need to be restored to fellowship with God? Well, Gordon made that really good uh, picture for us already this morning. We who once were separated from God because of sin in our hearts, we were at war with God. We're at war with each other. Sadly, we're still sometimes at war with each other, and we were separated because of sin. Fellowship with God was broken when Adam and Eve sinned and sinned into the world. Man was separated from God, and God drove man away from his presence. From Eden to the cross, there's always been a distance between God and man. And here is this beautiful picture. Jesus lying on a couch with all these other followers, all grouped together, eating around a central table. It pictures that reconciliation that we have with God because of what God has done. But Christ came that we might have fellowship restored. Man fellowshipping again with God. What Christ is doing here is he's showing these people, the Pharisees and the ones gathered with him, what it means to live the new life in Christ, the new life with Christ. But not the Pharisees. (laughs) Once again, they're standing outside. I can almost picture them. You know, they're walking by the house. They're kind of looking in the door to sort of see what's going on. Now they, oh, oh, I know him. He's a tax collector. I know her. She's not, a, she's bad. I, I know that person. I know, oh, they're all wicked people. And oh, that teacher from Galilee is in there. Hey, disciple, what's your teacher doing eating with sinners and tax collectors? And they kind of sneer as they say the words. You can almost hear it. They come and they question Jesus about his eating with them. His answer hits the very heart of the issue. He says, it's not healthy to need a doctor, it's the sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He's called them, he's called us, he's called everybody as sinners. He didn't come to call the righteous. Why? There aren't any. Simple as that. Coming to call the righteous to fellowship with him, he'd call and nobody could come because nobody was righteous. And his point is a little bit of sarcasm aimed at them. He's saying, listen, I came to call sinners and they're coming in here and they're eating and drinking and fellowshipping with me. Listen, you're not in here. Why? Because they didn't see themselves as sinners. They saw themselves as above and beyond the law. They saw themselves themselves as righteous because they kept the law. Sorry. In actuality, their failure to keep the law, coupled with their self-righteous attitude, made them just as much sinners as the prostitutes and tax collectors who've become his followers. They were just the same. They They just saw themselves as so much better than everybody else. But the tax collectors and sinners responded knowing they were sinners. They'd responded in faith and repentance and followed Jesus. They were enjoying new life with Christ. I can imagine them just sitting at a table, just rejoicing together. Enjoying the fact that they had been brought into this deep relationship with this teacher from Galilee who could heal the sick and cast out demons and cleanse lepers. And he's called them to follow him. And they're enjoying that incredible, intimate fellowship with God. I can't imagine what it must be like to sit there and lay on the couch and share a meal with Jesus. I'm looking forward to the day when we will be able to. But you know what? What about us? Let's not miss the points here. We have fellowship. They had fellowship with Jesus in person to person. We have fellowship with Christ through the Holy Spirit. We can enjoy that same intimacy, but on a far deeper level than they did because we have the Holy Spirit. Again, I'm going to dive off topic a little bit. I'm going to ask a question. What is it, brothers and sisters, that can hinder 
and strain our fellowship. We talked about it a little bit this morning. Sin that we allow to remain within us will strain and hinder that fellowship that we have with each other and with God. And I'm going to pick on one particular issue. Listen. Critical spirit that creeps into a church will strain and tear and ruin fellowship. Casey Bible Church, listen. It's happened before. It can just as easily happen again. We need to be so extremely careful and protective of each other. Someone brings you a criticism of somebody else in this church, don't listen. You know what fellowship is? Fellowship is each of us ministering our gifts, ministering Christ one to the other to build up the other person in Christ. So you go all through your week and you study and you learn and you fellowship with Christ one-on-one and what you're learning and what you're enjoying of Christ every single day as you live your life for him, he's teaching you about himself. You come together with other believers... We get together, we have coffee, we have prayer time, we have Bible studies, we have fellowship at the church here. We sit around the table like this and have fellowship. You minister what you've learned of Christ to me and you build me up. And I minister what I've learned of Christ to you and I build you up. But when a critical spirit creeps in, all of a sudden everybody pulls back and everybody withdraws and everybody closes up ranks and we build little walls all around ourselves and try to hide behind them to keep the critical spirit away from me. And that tears a church apart. I'm not saying it's going on now. I'm just saying, listen, we need to be absolutely diligent to be sure that when we're together, we're not critically tearing each other down. It will destroy the fellowship we have as a body together. Remember the Old Testament? The people of Israel were judged, and they're walking around the, test, around the, the wilderness in a number of different ways, a number of different severities. The most severe judgment of God was 23,000 killed in one day. You know what was over? Critical spirit. That's what was over. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a tremendous privilege gathering together week by week to enjoy Jesus together, gathering throughout the week to pray together, to be together, to encourage one another. Let's be so careful we don't use those opportunities to tear the fellowship all right, leave that there and move on. One last thing I want to show you. We'll just we'll skip ahead a bit here. The last thing I want to put out is this. The third point in uh, rejoice with great joy because you have Christ with you. Look at the next story. 18 to 20, 22. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and they came and said to him, what do, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sows. And he tells that parable again. We'll leave it there. Listen, the reason for fasting in the old economy is its association with mourning and with death. Okay, so people would mourn and grieve and they would fast and tear their clothes. But fasting is intimately connected with grieving and mourning, and especially over sin as well. It wasn't just death of a loved one. It's they mourned on the sin. For example, remember the story of Nineveh, right? John comes and he walks to the city. He's preaching about how God is going to destroy the city within 40 days. And what's the king of Nineveh do? He declares a fast. Everybody, 
Men and women and animals. He even puts them all in sackcloth and ashes. So the animals walk around with sackcloth on their backs. And all the people do. In fact, the king walks out in amongst his people. And they can see under his robes there's sackcloth there. And they're all fasting and mourning because they're grieving over the judgment of God that's about to fall because of their sin. Now you fast forward to the days of the Pharisees and that idea of fasting because of God's judgment and mourning over sin carried on. But the problem was the Pharisees in their self-righteousness and their hypocritical attitude began to fast not because they were mourning over sin, not because they were grieving because God's judgment was coming. They began to fast because they wanted everybody else to notice what they were doing. You know what Jesus says in Matthew 6? They do it to be seen by others. So these guys are looking around, right? Oh, there's John's disciples. Hey, they're fasting. Good. They're with us. And there's Jesus. Oh, they're eating and drinking and having a good party. And they go over and they're like, Jesus, how is it that we fast but your disciples do not fast? What's wrong with this picture? You should be fasting like we do. And Jesus tells this little parable, this little paradigm about the bridegroom. And when you first read it, I first read it, I thought, It's just a story. He's just using some kind of imagery. But in actuality, he's actually referring to the Old Testament in Jeremiah and the book of Isaiah, talking about the days after the exile, when the bride and the bridegroom, the voices of the bride and grab... Let me try it again without speaking in tongues. He's talking about the days after the exile of the people and salvation in the land when the voice of the bride and the bridegroom will be heard again. So when Jesus says, listen, the days are the bridegroom, they're with the bridegroom, they cannot fast. He isn't just telling a story. He's making a very strong point to these men. They know their Old Testament. They know all these kind of prophecies. They're well versed in the salvation that was coming to the people of the land. And they knew what he was saying. He's saying, listen, The bridegroom that Isaiah and Jeremiah talked about, he's here. There's reason not to fast. There's reason to rejoice because salvation has come. Listen, the days of fasting because the judgment of God is about to fall, they're over. The bridegroom is here. I'm going to be with my people and I'm going to rejoice and I'm going to fast. It's so neat that... In the same passage where the Pharisees are plotting how they might destroy him, Jesus speaks for the very first time about his death. Look what he says. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. What's he talking about? His death. He's talking about the day will come when he will go to a cross and suffer and die. The very same passage, the Pharisees are plotting to destroy him. But in this point here, he's saying, listen, these disciples of mine... They've got great reason to rejoice. The reason they rejoice is because I'm here. Because sin is going to be finally dealt with. Because I'm here. And there's, there's no more need for fasting because of grieving and mourning about sin. Listen, Christian. You and I have great reason to rejoice. Jesus is with us. They had him with them in person to person. If they went away for a while, they were separate from him. And when they came back and saw him, they were still having that same close fellowship. Listen, you and I can never, ever, ever be separated from Christ. What was his great promise? I will never leave you nor forsake you. Listen, we have reason to rejoice. You talked the other day, a couple weeks ago, about rejoicing as believers. 
The greatest reason you have for rejoicing is not because you've got a new job or a new house or a new car or you've gotten everything you need or your day is going well or your week's going well. You can rejoice because Jesus is with you. What gives us the strength to carry on? Jesus is with us. Did that happen because we all kept the law perfectly? No. It happened because God in his grace sent the Lord Jesus to be with us to teach us his word, to call us in grace to repentance and belief and to follow him. We have that incredible fellowship, not just with each other around a table. We have that intimate fellowship, that rejoicing because Jesus is ours. We can never lose him. And when he says they'll they'll fast in a day when the bridegroom is taken away from them, they would fast. Not not fasting literally. They would literally grieve and mourn because Jesus had suffered death on their behalf. And after that, when they saw him again, remember the, the, the women running away from the tomb with fear and great joy? They were so excited that Jesus had lived. They were so filled with joy because Jesus had conquered sin and death. We can rejoice this morning as Christians and believers. Whatever trial you're facing, If I asked you to put up your hand and explain if you have a trial you're facing in your life, I think every one of us would go, yep, got one. You can get through it. Why? Because God's going to take you out of that trial? No, maybe not. Maybe. Maybe he will. You can rejoice and you can get through it because you have Jesus with you. The new life in Christ is not because that we keep all the works. Listen, what I'm trying to say is this. If you're trying to earn God's favor and enjoy that fellowship because you did all the right things today, you miss the point. Even if you do all the wrong things today, you will still have Christ with you. That sounds hard to believe, isn't it? How many of us grew up with a mindset that, well, my day should go better because, you know, I read my Bible this morning and, you know, I prayed this morning and, you know, uh, I didn't speed on the way to work and I didn't get angry when my coworker got mad at me and I, and I have all these reasons why God should be nice to me because I did all these really good things. How many grew up thinking in that kind of mindset? Yep, I sure did. Listen, the reality is that we have Christ with us and he will never, ever, ever leave us. It's not because you kept the law. It's because God in his grace did so. Does that make sense? All right. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's pray. Do you have one more song, Deb? Okay. Let's pray together. Loving Father, we give you thanks again for our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And Father, we give you thanks. It's not because of works of law. It's not because we're all good enough that we're gathered around this table this morning. Father, it's not because any of us can do it on our own. It's because none of us can do it on our own. Father, we give you thanks that you saw the depths of our heart. You saw the depths of the wickedness and depravity of these sinful hearts. And Father, you saw and knew that none could do enough good. None could come to you. None could seek you out. And Father, in your grace, you sent Jesus. And in your grace, you sent him and you called him. Father, you used him to call us to yourself. Father, we thank you and we praise you that it's by grace through faith, it's not by keeping the works of the law. Father, we thank you for the new life we have in Christ. Father, we thank you for the new system, grace 
and faith, not law. Father, we rejoice this morning that we have a Savior. We rejoice in the fellowship we have one with the other. We rejoice, O God, because Christ is with us. He will never leave us or forsake us. Father, we give you thanks for your grace. Father, we ask you again for help and for blessing for this little church. Father, again, we pray that you would bring revival amongst us. Father, we pray that you would give us a renewed zeal for your your word, a renewed zeal for prayer, a renewed zeal, Father, for worship, a renewed zeal, Father, for loving each other as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. Father, we ask you these things and we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.